To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom and priest to God his Father, to him be glory and power forever. Amen. God's gospel is eternal, as our sermon text says. And it's always the same. It's always that Jesus Christ, true God, became true man and did all the work of being righteous, kept all the works of doing the law, and he's credited that for you. And he removed your sin by giving his life and rising for you. So your salvation is 100% in God's hands. God did all the work. The Greek word that we translate as the gospel, oiangelos, literally means good news. Good news that God has done all the work to save you. But after Christ's ascension, gradually over time, little ideas that you just got to do a little bit, and then you just got to do a little bit more, and then you just got to do a little bit more, kept creeping in and creeping in. Until we arrive at the medieval ages, when we finally reach the point where forgiveness is being sold in the form of indulgences. A monk who happens to be an Old Testament professor knows this is wrong. And he posts 95 theses to debate the selling of forgiveness. He didn't quite completely understand that salvation is by grace alone when he posted those theses, but it started a snowballing effect. It was the spark that lit up the Reformation. And through many other Christians who embraced that message, the gospel was restored and shone like a bright light. But here we are today where you can hardly go to a city in the United States where you won't find a church that at least claims to be Christian, and yet so often in many of those churches you will find ideas that you have to do your best, that's works, and then God will do the rest plus grace. That is not the good news of salvation. That is work righteousness. The the gospel, the good news of forgiveness, remains the same, but the world is always attacking it, trying to change the message. And so our sermon theme for today is, you are part of an ongoing reformation. And we'll see the gospel is eternal and for all, and the gospel makes us fear and glorify God. Our text for our sermon is Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the middle of the sky. He had the everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the sky, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, John writes the book of Revelation and he literally says it's a vision given to him. He is exiled on the island of Patmos because he will not deny his Lord. He can look out at night across the shores and see the distant lights of the city of Ephesus and his heart would ache for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's 90 years old. And God gives him this vision. It's a muriel. It's a painting of salvation. And it over and over again says the Christian church will be persecuted right up until the end. But she will be victorious because her Savior has already won the victory. And God says that through many different muriels, through many different visions. And to put our text in its context, we've got to go back to Revelation chapter 12. There we're told there's a woman who's waiting to give birth to a child and there's a dragon and that dragon is waiting to devour the child. And then we're told who the dragon is. We're given the key to the whole interpretation. We're told the dragon is Satan. 
Now, a lot of people read their own interpretations into Revelation. They throw scripture out and they tie it to particular events. But here we know it begins, we know that dragon is Satan because it tells us that. And we know anytime somebody interprets Revelation and it is not centered around Christ crucified, their interpretation is wrong. It's blatantly obvious who the child is. The devil wanted to devour one child. This was predicted when Adam and Eve fell into sin, that that seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bite his heel. The child is Jesus. Now we can quickly think that the woman is Mary, but there's other things there that shows this woman live, outlives the normal human lifespan. The woman is the invisible Christian church of all believers, starting with Adam and Eve when God gave them faith after the fall and that coming seed. And it continues to be until the last person is born. And Jesus comes through that church in this way. He gets his human flesh from his lineage of believers, David on down through Mary and Joseph. Now the devil wants to destroy the child and we're told he's wrapped up, sent up into heaven. Jesus had a very short life here on this earth. He died for our sins and he ascended to rule for us. Then we're told the woman goes into exile. She goes in the wilderness to keep from being devoured by that devil. The church is constantly under attack and there are times, especially when you go to places in the world where there are those persecuting the church, where they are meeting in dark places. They are meeting in secret. It often seems, and in most of Christian history, the church was hiding in the wilderness. He then goes on to describe those who would persecute the church. Now recall, John is exiled on the island of Patmos and he's separated from the sea. In chapter 13, two beasts are described. One beast comes from the sea. That pretty quickly is understood to be the persecution that comes from outside of the church, the invisible church. This happens like when the Roman government in ten waves of persecution went after the Christian church trying to destroy it. It happens in, in the Reformation when the Roman Catholic Church used the government to try to stamp out the Reformation. Sadly, even Lutheran pastors after Luther died Roman soldiers came in and would rape their wives unless the men recanted their faith. Yes, the government was used to persecute the church. And there's other ways like Islam outside the church, which still to this day is killing Christians. And that beast is dealt a mortal wound, but it lives. For example, the Roman government persecuted the Christian church in ten waves, but then God converted Constantine. But yet still persecution would come again. Brothers and sisters in Christ, out of that beast comes another beast. And this one comes from the land. It comes from within the visible church. And we're told that this beast you can't buy or sell unless you have his mark, the number 666, on your right hand and on his left hand. Again, this is a muriel. So it's using the picture of an economy. You're able to buy something. It's using the picture of an economy. Now, you do something with your hand, you work. If it's on your forehead, you do something with your head, you think. So this is an economy in which you buy and sell something by doing works and it permeates your thinking. Now the number six is the number of imperfection. The perfect number in, in scriptures, in prophecy, and that is the number seven. We have seven candles here. We have three in one, Three in one. The number seven is the number of that trinity. Three in one, one in three. The number six falls short. And that beast, his name and his mark is six. It falls short of God's work. Something you do with your hand, it permeates your thoughts in order to purchase and buy something. And without it, you don't get it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Forgiveness, salvation, it's perfect because God did it. But the minute we make it a work or in thoughts that permeate man, it becomes work righteousness and it falls short and we go to hell. Within the visible church, anytime somebody rises up and insists that you have to do your best and then God will do the rest, or they say you have to give the right amount of offering, or they say you have to do this certain amount of penance to be forgiven, or literally you can buy an indulgence to be forgiven, that is the beast. The beast is work righteousness. And it's sad, in, even in the Reformation, the Roman church used the government to persecute the Lutherans who were standing on the gospel. And then the Calvinists came along and they got control of the German government. And guess what? They used the government to force those who were standing on the pure gospel, the Lutherans, to worship with them and follow their work righteous ways. It still happens today, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so now we, we get to Revelation chapter 14 where we're told 144,000 would be saved. Now, that's another symbolic number. This is a Muriel. There were 12 tribes of the Old Testament. There were 12 apostles in the New Testament. 12 times 12 is 144. Old Testament and New Testament believers are saved. The number of completeness in scriptures is the number 10. So 10 for the Old Testament, the complete number of believers in the Old Testament times the complete number of believers in the New Testament equals 100. 100, and this is 12 times 12, 10 times 10, all multiplied together 144,000. That's not saying only 144,000 believers are going to be saved like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. It's saying... All those who are members of that church, the Old Testament, all those true believers in the Old Testament and all the true believers in the New Testament will be saved. So after all these persecutions and these beasts, God is using John to tell us, yet all believers, both Old and New Testament, will be saved. And that's where our text begins. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having the eternal gospel in order to announce the good news unto those sitting upon the earth. The eternal gospel, brothers and sisters in Christ. The gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, does not change. It is good news for you because God did all the work to save you and God's not going to change his mind. He's not going to turn around tomorrow and say, Ah, you know what? I'm going to make it. You guys are being stingy. I'm going to make it that you have to give 50% of your income in offerings in order to be saved. Or you have to walk all the way across Wyoming in the wintertime on your knees until you have nothing but nubs left in order to be saved. No. The gospel remains the same. From the moment God promised it to Adam and Eve to the moment the last person comes to faith before Christ returns, it is God has done all the work to save you. You hear the proclamation. The Holy Spirit enters your heart and gives you faith. And this angel is flying. Literally, the Greek word is mid-heaven. Now, Scripture uses the word heaven to describe the sky, to describe space, the planets, and to describe the throne of God. But the picture here is the beast is down here on the earth. Uh, the, the dragon's down here on the earth. His beast's persecution outside the church and even within the church, they're hammering away but the gospel's out of reach for them. They can't reach up and change it. And it's a comfort for us to hear that it is eternal, like I said, because it's not going to change. Now, sadly, men continually change it. They say, oh, that's an old-fashioned belief. We know better today. And they turn around and they'll say, we can all agree to disagree. And they water down the good news of salvation. And God's got to send somebody to come along and restore it. 
People come along and they, they change that good news into different forms of work righteousness. You do something, then God saves you. And they often miss that they're doing it while confessing Christ on their lips. But the gospel doesn't change. Sadly, liberal Christians even change the gospel and salvation too. We need to work through our government to create a utopian society. And their idea of utopia usually is to have a communism or socialism established. And they miss the fact, not scriptures, but history has proven. Whenever a government becomes communist or socialist, they always end up with a dictator and they always end up persecuting Christians. The definition of his insanity is to keep doing something over and over again and expect a different result. God has said the government will persecute Christians at times and there'll be Christians within the church, but the gospel doesn't change. He's keeping you saved. He's keeping that out of reach so they can't change it. And the interesting thing there, he says he has it, unto those sitting upon the earth and so unto every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The good news of salvation in Christ is meant for all. God wants all people to be saved. Even some of the nastiest people who have persecuted the Christian church. Oh, let's say like a Pharisee named Saul. God wanted him to be saved too and used him to write almost 70% of the New Testament. That's a comfort for you and I. This is just a restatement that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Salvation is for all. But it's individually and specifically for you. That angel flying around with the eternal gospel, God worked that he would send somebody, and, and, and that angel is probably just representative of the good news of salvation being proclaimed by any messenger. God sent a messenger to you to baptize you, to share the word with you. And he sends you as a messenger to share that word with your children and your co-workers and your friends. So we see universal salvation. It's for all people. But through faith, it individually becomes yours. So we see you are part of an ongoing reformation. The gospel is eternal and for all. There are always going to be within the visible church and without people who are persecuting it and trying to change it. But God, as he did with the reformation, will not let it be snuffed out. He will keep you in your salvation. We get to verse 7 that explains how he sends this gospel. And it's kind of neat in the Greek. It says back there in verse 6, having the eternal gospel in order to gospelize onto those sitting on the earth. Almost like life-giving rains falling down upon the farmland to grow. But now he says how that good news, that gospelizing falls upon us. It says, by saying only in a loud voice. You often hear me say we've got to pay attention to the Greek prepositions. And the preposition here is only in a loud voice. No other way. And yes, God brought his gospel like to Elijah the prophet when he's in the cave and he's burned out and he, and he comes to him in a whisper. But the picture here is the gospel is loud and clear. If somebody ends up in hell, they have only themselves to blame because it's clearly there and blatantly in scripture. So by saying only in a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't that sound like a command? Doesn't that sound like a law? You better fear God and you better only give him glory. In fact, it says, because the hour of judgment has come or else you're going to hell. Well, this message is law for unbelievers. It's law for the God-hating atheist. It says, you'd better, you'd better fear God because God is all-powerful and he is, has all the glory. And it even explains to that what that means uh, because the hour of his judgment has come 
And so bow and worship in the one who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Why should I bow and worship him, screams the atheist as he thrums, thumbs his nose as God. Why should I bow and worship you, screams the LDS or the Jehovah's Witness or, or, the, the, or the Islamist. Because God is the one who made this. Not what we decide is fair and fair. God who is holy is the one who made all this. And the hour of judgment has already come, brothers and sisters in Christ. It came when Christ died and rose again. It's this simple. He died for all men, the gospels for all men, all men and women. There's only one thing that sends you to hell. God's judgment is this simple. Either you believe or you don't. And that's the judgment. Your good works are evidence of faith, but they're not what save you. You can't do good works unless you are saved. So what it means to fear God for the unbeliever is you continue rejecting God on judgment day, you will regret it. But there's also the Holy Spirit works through the word, whether it's the law to show us our need of a savior or the gospel to show us we have a savior. And it's giving an invitation to those. God created you. He wants you to fear and give glory to him. And then it sends the Holy Spirit and empowers us to do it because it tells us Christ has come. He was righteous in your place. He has saved you. And now suddenly... Originally, the Hebrew verb yare, which means to fear, it means something different. It doesn't mean you should stand and quake in your boots at God because of your unholiness. It means you stand in reverent awe. Because God, who created everything, who could have crushed you like a bug in the eternal flames of hell, instead took that punishment for you on the cross. And it saved you. So now, we stand in reverent awe. This command gives us the Holy Spirit, and we fulfill it. We have faith in him and we stand in reverent awe and we give glory to him. Our good works are not done to save us. They give glory to him. Recall that when we obey God, we are giving him glory. You are here obeying his command to stay in his word in which he feeds and nourishes your faith. And you are giving glory to God while he is feeding your faith and keeping you in your faith. You give glory to God when you return to work and your faith shines through. And so it means to fear God for you a totally different thing. And in this text, as the angel, as a messenger, proclaims that you're being empowered to do this. The gospel is making you fear and glorify God. And what it means to glorify God is simply that, to obey him, to trust in him that he's done the work for your salvation. And he works that glory through you as he grows those good fruits of faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you. To go back and read Revelation 12 through 14, having been given the keys of interpretation, and see how wonderfully God is saying, there will always be those who are persecuting those who cling to the good news of salvation in Christ, but I won't let you go. He used the Reformation to restore that, and he uses you as an ongoing Reformation to tell your neighbor whether they're an unbeliever or a Christian who belongs to a congregation or church that's teaching that they have to do something in order to be saved. He, he makes you a part of an ongoing Reformation, always restoring people to that pure good news that God has done all the work of your salvation by taking on human flesh. The gospel is eternal and for all, and the gospel makes us fear and glorify God. Amen. Now, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen.